But I think that's the future, is that it's going to be a combination of these things that humans discern values, principles, what we want out of a system. That's heuristic. Those are guardrails. And that's just like good user experience. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Chris Butler, the chaotic good product manager, writer, and speaker. Now, Chris is a very interesting character. He's been a product leader in companies from Google to Microsoft to Kayak and Waze, but always has a very interesting moment about when he joins these companies. It's often a transition in a technology, transition in a movement or customer behavior. He's always followed his curiosity and looked for novelty in the way that he builds. On this show, we sort of dive into the twists and turns of his own career, but also what he's learned along the way. What were some of the changes that he recognized patterns he could take with him from previous roles, and new patterns that emerged from his experiences embracing these new novel technologies. So before we get started, let's go back and hear more from Chris about how it got going for him. I've always been really driven by novelty, I think. I've always seeked out different things. Maybe in my youth, I used to do a lot of stuff with computers and phones. And so I've always been a little bit of like a counter-establishment type of person, I guess. I've made like red boxes, if you know what those are, but it's a way to like make a payphone think that you put a quarter in it. Or I used to run like a where's board, a bulletin board system back in the day off of like a Mac 2 and a, you know, 9600. Actually, we started with the 2400 bottom of them. And so- You were basically John Connor and Terminator 2, essentially. (laughs) I didn't have the cool credit card stuff. Although there is a hypercard stack that's floating around that does maybe some credit card generation. I'm not going to- Say that Maybe, I did that exactly, exactly. Maybe. <laughs> it might be known to have. Nice. I've authored a few hypercard stacks that were of particular use. I think I've just always been very interested in that. I, growing up around my dad, he was an art director and I was kind of his technical to not only think about the transition from spray adhesive and typesetting and exacto knives to like Quark Express and actual typesetting and things like that in the computer. He also started selling like web services to his clients where I was the web dev in the mid nineties, basically. So it's like a lot of that, but he was really interested in history, was really promoting me to read an awful lot. And my mom was in hospitality. So I worked in restaurants and stuff like that. I did a lot of like contract work. So it was kind of like all over the map, just like trying lots of different things. The first job I ever like officially applied to, I did get fired from the same day. And that was because- I was trying to work in a supermarket and I apparently was not smiling enough while I was fronting groceries. <laughs> and so that was fine. Put me on a uh, kind of a direction. I've always been interested in just like finding out about new things. But I think like the real moment of doing all this learning, 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 and then having to actually break down all this stuff and unlearn something was at Microsoft. And so oh, really? that was the first role right out of college where I was a program manager. And for a couple of years, Program management at Microsoft is kind of a mixture of project management stuff and then yeah. product management stuff. And so, you know, this is still back in the day when we used MS Project and I had like humongous Gantt charts that were trying to like lay out every possibility of the way that we would do things and getting really into the weeds. I hope you have you framed somewhere <laughs> up in your office. The scariest thing that I have still as like a printout is there was a specification that I wrote that was for basically adopting three different RFCs for meeting requests to Hotmail, 
exchange and outlook. And that document set is about 600 pages long. Well so done. I'm never writing another one like that again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And please don't print it out. We need to keep exactly. the tree. It was yeah. four up double-sided. So oh, it's not as bad as you think it would be. But I think like there, the goal was to really be as exact as possible. And I thought I was going to go get like a PMI certification. And I thought I was going to be really all about like this. How do we be as certain as possible about something? Yeah. But I think once you get to a certain level of tenure inside of product management, it's really about like, how are you burning away these certainties? And so you, you get hurt enough in the development process where estimates don't turn out the way you expect them to. Or the way that you thought things would work out when you went into the market didn't turn out that way. This is the fascinating stuff, though, to riff on a bit, though, right? Because yeah. it's also a really interesting part is you sort of talk about your own career journey, right? Like this is your first sort of exposure in the corporate world. You know, I imagine you're getting this like very good training on the current process as it exists. Thou shalt do it this way. But it's interesting as you sort of describe that, like a lot of these learning journeys is you learn these practices in a way to recognize when to strip them away, as you're describing. I'm almost thinking like every iteration, sometimes people see the iteration as internally in a company. It's when they change roles. It's when they have different responsibilities. What were some of the moments that you could see those inflection points in your own skills where you were sort of thinking like, I'm not getting the outcomes here. I'll try a different way because you're obviously an experimenter. Yeah. I mean, it, almost with my career. So if you look at a lot of the things that I've done, some of them tend to have like whatever the newest technology du jour was is in my job title. And so if anything, that shows that we didn't really know what the rules were. Kayak, for example, it was like, it was such a mouthful of a title too. It was like Global Mobile Director of Monetization or something Oh, wow. Like great. Yeah. Say yeah. that 50 times fast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I made a mistake by like saying, oh, well, if this is going to be a global role, I need to make sure it's in my job title when I'm negotiating it. But big mistake. <laughs> But I think like in that case, right, I use that as an example a lot because that was right when Kayak was starting to make the transition from pure desktop web type of stuff into the mobile world. And yeah. you know, I would say my biggest impact there was really helping convince the executive team that they should invest more than a less than a handful worth of developers into the mobile web experience when the reality is that was a huge number of people coming in there. Oh, yeah. And we were misunderstanding what it actually meant to mean to buy travel, right? Like just because people were accessing things via mobile phone from anywhere at that point, didn't mean that they had more time off or that they were buying more travel. They still had the same number of vacation days. They still had the same salary coming in. And so we had to think about like, actually this is more of an omni-channel experience. It's that people browse and kind of have conversations with people through mobile. And then they feel really uncomfortable at that point to spend more than a thousand dollars on a mobile device. So fascinating to riff on this actually, because I always love when people get to share like these moments. In retrospect, it's very easy to sort of look back and go, oh, of course we were going to go to mobile. But hearing you share that story is just like making me have shivers and nightmares again <laughs> of similar conversations of trying to say, you, know, you could start to see traffic appearing on mobile, mm -hmm. but the behavior, different behavior was sort of happening. It was almost segmented behavior as you're describing it here, right? Like browse and, and figure out like what I might want to do on one device, but whoa, 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 I wouldn't put a credit card on a mobile phone and pay for something. <laughs> you know, you've seen a lot of these. What are some of the signals that you look for in these sort of moments where you can see behavior starting to shift in customers and yet the technology is probably not there? Certainly the 
understanding from a leadership team can often not be there. How do you help people make that jump? Well, I think that's the problem is I have a little bit of a natural distrust in my leaders, not in like a bad way. I try to just, there was a really interesting paper in like a management science journal back in the 80s that was called Dominant Logic Theory. And I actually met Rich Betis, who was like one of the authors of it. He worked at Ford and a bunch of other stuff like that. But it's where like people will take their past successes and use that as a mental model towards future circumstances. So the problem with senior leaders is that they are absolutely suffering from this. They've made it to a position of power inside of a large organization. And so it's not their fault. It's just the way that the world is. I think starting from that point of view means that I'm going to be questioning that. But the other thing is that just a lot of people don't ask the right questions of their customers. That was probably the first case where I really came across personal user research. And so I was doing like guerrilla research where if I was sitting in an airport, by the way, I was booking everything via my mobile phone in that particular case because I was just forcing myself to. And I found lots of problems with that. But just like walking around and talking to people in airports about how they did their travel booking, that separation between like leisure and business travel is another segmentation that gets us away from this idea of like channel segmentation and more into the realm of like actual usage segmentation. And I think I saw that with the restaurant startup, restaurant tech startup I did that was called Complete Seating, where again, the open table rep in the Bay Area really hated us because we were like stealing high value accounts from them based on Great. the fact that yeah. we were looking Good at it. And in that particular case, one of the things that we did that I think was kind of novel is, well, we were one of the first groups, I think, to really do table confirmations via text message. And the reason why that was really valuable is the biggest problem that restaurateurs deal with is if they run a very heavy reservation book and they don't do a lot of walk-in, they can't readopt these like no-shows. And so the thing was, is that we were able to do some really interesting like analysis between the different channels that we could provide confirmation. And so we did phone, we did text message, and we did email. And we found that actually like text message was the one that was the lowest cost, most response rate, but would also then cut the rate of no-shows by a significant amount. This is one of those things where, again, it's like, you want data, but you also want to like ask people. When I first got it started with complete seating, I would actually stage once a night at one of our client restaurants or a friendly restaurant where I would be like standing behind the host, watching them do their job, sometimes wiping down glasses, thin menus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Living this. Yeah, that's <laughs> they got, it. They, they got free labor. But then like looking at what the problems were, like the fact that they had to spend 45 minutes before the shift started just calling people. We saw that as a problem and we saw that it still didn't always help. The idea of getting a phone call didn't always ensure that the person was going to come in or even cancel. And so lowering the bar, using a text message, that's another example. So I would just say like, I think that's why to me, this cycle of learning, user research, data analysis, like all those things are ways that we can challenge our current worldview. That orientation or worldview, if we talk about it from the standpoint of like John Boyd and the OODA loop, that orientation is where everything goes haywire. If you do not do a good job of setting up your orientation, I think that's where a lot of it comes from. It's lovely to hear you share the really practical visuals of like sitting in restaurants at six o'clock before the place opens and like watching how people behave. It's one of these things where I hear people talk about it a lot, but they're like actually getting into like the real experience of doing it doesn't happen a lot. I always enjoy reminding people that you can learn information in lots of different ways. And just like the actual reality of just watching people do what they do and sort of like really experiencing it is still such a profound way to learn on top of all the technology that you can put in there to measure, you know, what time they click at or a click rate or tick frequency or whatever. There's something a lot to be said about really immersing yourself to challenge your mental models. You know, I'm guilty of this as much as anybody is that we like to stick to what we know. 
we like to sort of even comfort about how we build products, like stick into the method that has served us in the past. It's sort of nice to hear you share some of these little experiences yourself, especially in like these transitionary technologies, if you will, like you've seen the shift to the web, you've seen the shift to mobile. Now you're like sort of like digging around in the AI world again, seeing how a massive technology capability, but also pairing that with the human side is the and. What have been some of the things that have struck you that have served you from the mobile transition, if you want to call it that, to now this sort of rather than a platform shift to a massive technology shift? When I first kind of approached this domain of, say, machine learning or AI, it was from the standpoint of a design consultancy named Philosophy. And that group in particular, you know, again, like I eventually had the title where I was director of AI projects, which (laughs) says anything about like the precipice of that type of thing. But where we were really approaching it in that case was, yes, there's going to be technology that will do things that are really impressive, right? Like we'll be able to predict something, we'll be able to understand something, or maybe pull out a pattern or a rule that we're not able to actually discern as human beings. But then the question becomes, what can human beings do with that? Because the truth is, is a machine that is super smart on its own doesn't actually exist by itself. And this is where maybe taking from soft systems methodology, which is like Checkland in the 70s and 80s, this is like post-cybernetics, post-systems thinking, where we're saying, yeah, we have these like really perfect system diagrams with all this machinery, but then there's like these squishy things that keep on screwing everything up in here. What do we do about that? And so the way we would orient in this particular case was humans need to interact with these systems no matter how smart they are. And so how do they do that in a way that is most valuable and effective? And that was really where that got started. That took me down this route where I think I was like the main person talking about the intersection of design thinking and AI. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just because it was marketable great. at the time. Yeah, <laughs> so, why not? Hey, I'll take yeah, that. Why not? Yeah, great. But we did a lot of like innovation work. And so we would work for very large companies that just didn't know how to embrace these technologies yet. Or if they had amazing groups, like inside of like large financial institutions, they've had machine learning for decades based on the fact of fraud prevention, those types of things. But what they didn't think is like, how does this get closer to the end user experience in some way by which people will be able to like get a real benefit? And maybe that takes me to like what I work on now, where McGoogle as a lead PM, which is also kind of a weird title. There's not really lead PMs inside of Google, but I work for the vice president of product for the core machine learning group. And what we do is we basically build all of the stuff that Google uses when it comes to machine learning and then releases externally. So things that are like applied solutions, if a major group needs to have like a machine learning solution, we'll help them with that if they don't know how to do it. We build all the frameworks and services like Keras, TensorFlow, TensorBoard, all those things come out of this team and then are open sourced. And then we even go all the way down to management of kind of like the way we deal with obfuscation of the technology that are accelerates below that. So it's like data centers and the way that like you'll try to train a very large model, the TPU chips that are co-designed to be able to be accelerators. We handle that whole stack. My job is, I guess, a fairly unique one within the team in that I kind of help corral the strategy for my VP. I say corral because it's a fairly new team, still just like a lot of stuff being jammed together as a team. Yeah. And then the second thing I do is I like to call it PMing the PM experience, but it's really like, how do we help with PM effectiveness in general in the context of this team? And it's highly specific on this context, right? Every context is different as far as like, what is the job a PM should do inside this org? And I don't just mean Google, I mean like inside of Cornell. And then finally, I'm like special projects person for my boss. So like, 
a lot of that stuff gets kind of like canceled like a majority of the time, but at least we explored it. That's kind of the stuff I do today. But I, I think like what's really interesting about machine learning long term is that everything about the way we do software development today tends to be a lot of focus on like heuristic. So like I write a piece of code that I think will do what I think it is. And there's some ambiguity in the way that you end up writing that code, right? Because you may name a variable something that someone else thinks that variable means something else, right? There's some ambiguity, but you have to be like really good at wrangling that ambiguity to be able to like create a system that is maybe ideally less buggy. It does what you kind of want it to do and gets the outcomes for people. What gets interesting with machine learning is that you're no longer necessarily talking about heuristic. You're talking about creating an environment by which you train something based on data that you have like, there's a lot of question marks I just added to this entire equation. But I think that's the future is that it's going to be a combination of these things that humans discern values, principles, what we want out of a system. That's heuristic. Those are guardrails. And that's just like good user experience. When I use my banking app, I don't want it to constantly alter where this thing is based on my mood or something like that. Like I want some things that are sure things about usage. I want it to become like the idea of a hammer kind of works similarly the same way. There's certain tools that I just want to work the same way all the time. But then there's other stuff like all these new generative AI type of systems where what you want is you need to build a system that can then also engage with a probabilistic model that will not work exactly the same way all the time and may alter the way it operates over time as well. And so that's just the future of like development in general. And so what we do as a team, I think of, it's not just like, oh, this like amazing, cool technology, but it's like, now what does that mean to actually build development tools that allow for this integration, not just of heuristic systems, because we kind of don't deal with that as much, but it's like all these like weird probabilistic systems how do you wrangle them? How do you know that they're doing the right thing? How do you experiment with the environment by which you're actually training these things? That's what we do as like a team as we're building that. We're building kind of like atriums for new things basically that will exist in some way. It's lovely to hear you sort of describe this perspective. We've had some fantastic people on the show like Bill Higgins who runs IBM Watson as well. And yeah, we actually had John Allspot on who was the CTO of Etsy and talked a lot about human augmentation and safety systems when building AI. But it's really interesting as someone like yourself, who's gone through many different sort of iterations of product management and domain, that you're talking about these subtle shifts where before you might've had an idea and built it and tested and see, did it, did it work the way you designed it versus this idea where you're feeding a piece of software, if you will, some information. And then looking at the output and sort of saying to yourself, hmm, does that feel right? Is that what we <laughs> thought it might look like? That's uncertainty a little bit like all the way through. You're uncertain, like, is this the right information as an input? Did we code it in a way that it processed it the way we want? And is the output what we hoped? It's really fascinating. Like, what are some of the little skills you've had to learn? Because that's very different from sitting down with the restaurateur and like <laughs> observing their behavior. Because it's very difficult to observe the behavior of a technical model, if you will. What have been some of the things you've had to sort of shift out there or unlearn in that respect? I think this concept of explainability inside of these models is one of those things. But I would argue that trying to understand how a host or a manager actually seats a restaurant, there's a lot of uncertainty in the models that they use. Because like there would be some people that I would talk to where they would say, well, actually, I'm going to seat this like table of like probably a bunch of girls that are going out. And then there's a table of like a bunch of guys going out. I'm going to seat them next to each other because I think they might want to, in some way, I will create some type of connection or yeah. I'm going to put all the families in the back or I'm going to put 
these different dates that are going on and like the bank outs or something like that, right? And so there is like a really complicated way that people start getting good at this type of decision making that I would refer to as like tacit knowledge or intuition. There's something beneficial to these things. I've been really over the last like year or two been diving really deep into something called naturalistic decision making, which is kind of Gary Klein, who is the inventor of the pre-mortem, has done a lot of really amazing work. His whole thing is how do you understand and transfer expertise between people more? In the case when we center this around the machine learning is that for a long time, and even today, trying to understand what are the right parameters for training your model, for example, we now have systems that do hyperparameter tuning because they're better at doing the search of all these parameters. Part of that is enabled through just like amazing advances in accelerators and microchips and things like that, but also part of it is just like technique. I would take that another step further. There are going to be aspects of this job that machines will just be able to do better. Another example is that right now, if you want to write something that is like a machine learning model that's trained on a server somewhere, and then you want to put it on a device, you basically have to write the model twice. And that sucks. <laughs> right? yeah. like having to deal with that is just like a huge waste of time. It means you need a lot of specialization. Even today, like some people have to know where this thing is going to run based on the model that they want to create. That is bad. So there's going to be more layers of obfuscation that we end up creating as we create a more robust stack around that. I guess like the things that you need to unlearn there that just because something is like a high craft doesn't mean it should be a craft for forever. Yeah. There are things that are craft that are like really important. Again, inside product management, we could talk about this too, but like I've been thinking a lot about decision-making recently. And so I ran like an internal workshop that was like about time management and we did a calendar audit for people, which was like mind-blowing for some of them. I bet. And then yeah, yeah. the last 20 minutes was actually a surprise. This is a decision-making <laughs> workshop because really everything that we do when it comes to time management, the reason why people have too many meetings on their calendars is because they kind of misinterpret the decision-making process. And so they end up having like 10 times as many meetings as they need to for a decision versus this idea of how do you separate the things from identification of a decision, discourse around a decision, the decision-making, communication, and like learning loop. And so there's things like that that I just think are really interesting. But that's the thing about the machine learning is that there are a lot of things that we need to start to turn into standardized components that we don't have today. A lot of stuff is still being made very custom. Our job is to make it so that it's simpler for people that have less experience in this type of thing to build machine learning models long-term yeah. because that will be the future. And you can get into all this stuff about like, are you model-centric or data-centric, which is how hand-curated the data is there. When we talk about like large models, how much do you need to like adopt those things to specific examples? And so we're finding some interesting patterns here that I think like that's the reason why everybody's so excited about the stuff going on right now is because it does feel like we're almost on like a precipice of like a new right way on. of doing things. We haven't figured out any of that stuff yet, though, is what I'm saying. Like, I, I think we're <laughs> yeah, all figuring yeah. this stuff out. And that's why always being recentered on like, how are we helping people do something better? How are we really helping them solve a problem they have? I think end up being kind of truths that you should always believe in. I can't think of a time that I've unlearned trying to be focused on the customer or their problem. Yeah. No, I but think I have it's great. constantly yeah. unlearned many, many things about like what I believe to be true about the assumptions of these types of technologies. I think that's a perfect framing too as well, right? It's good to know that you still feel like there's core tenants or first principles <laughs> or things that still exist. That gives us a lot of hope, I think. But again, it's why I'd love to ask those questions, right? Is yeah. just hearing like where people are finding new patterns emerge what surprises them about what things that they thought actually didn't matter in one world, but now in a new world, they're like right. suddenly really important. And I love that emphasis. 
let me give you another example too of just like some of the work I do today is just asking people. So you're going to go into this like very large meeting and you're going to talk about what you're working on. And we have like tens of products underneath our umbrella. You're going to spend 60 minutes talking to a group of maybe 50 to 70 people. What do you expect to get out of this meeting? I don't know. I didn't think about that. I'm just going to go tell them about what I'm working on. I'm like, well, what is it about what you're working on that they need to understand? And what is it about what they're working on that you need to understand in this context, right? And so just even like asking these very simple questions, get us into the realm of like, why are we doing something? When it comes to PM practice, there's a lot of stuff that's on Medium that is just like crap, but it's telling you to just like believe in doing something for something's sake. But that gets to your original point around like shuhari and all that. The idea of that I learn the way, I break the rules of the way, and then I am the way type of thing, I think is the true kind of arc of mastery for anything. But I don't think people think about like, how do they spend their time? They don't think about how do I do this meeting? They don't think about what is the goal of this document? How do I test whether this document's doing what I think I need to do? And so I think like that's the practice that I'm trying to bring right now is just like this idea of learning and relearning and unlearning from the standpoint of like, we're just talking about PRDs and like meetings. <laughs> you know what I mean? And how do we do that better? It's something that's like my day to day. I'm living this in the studio, especially <laughs> I'd like, well, because we, we've a, a broad group of different companies, different people, different experiences. We need to give them a paved road of some description to say like, these are our expectations of how you progress this company. One thing that just struck me straight away as you were describing it is also the design aspect hey. of like, why do we have these collaboration points? It's very easy for us to say, you know, thou shalt meet on Mondays to do a stand-up, on Wednesdays to do a review, on Thursday to do, right? But that's not really the point. The point is, as you had these great framing questions, what do you need to learn from the audience and what do they need to learn from you? That's the information that needs to be exchanged. Not, do I show up to the meeting? The agenda item says, thou shalt report on product strategy and this. But there's a subtlety there, I think, about knowing when to do certain aspects or what to do. I see that a lot probably guilty of it as well myself sometimes, I go into autopilot. I think it's always a really healthy reminder to just have those even framing questions. I'm sure when you did that workshop, people must have had to be exploding when they were like looking at 25 demo reviews meetings that they were <laughs> in and then wondering like, do I need to be in all of these or are they effective collaboration points? Like they're really healthy reminders. I think the reason why we work with other people, the reason why we're humans like to be in groups is because yes, there are lots and lots of cognitive biases that we've developed over time because we need to shortcut how much energy we, we spend, how much time we have, how much information we have. We need to constantly doing that. But I guess the whole idea of kind of thinking fast and slow and Kahneman from that standpoint, I think talks about like, how do we actually alleviate these biases in some way, which is fine. But the way you do that most naturally is in a group of other people. And there's been studies that have shown that like, you know, for this one cognitive task that was like, how do you choose what is the rule for these cards, essentially, like whether they're even and odd and 20% of the time people will get it right. So one out of five people will get it right if they're by themselves, but you put them in a group of five, it, the actual success rate goes up to 80%. And the reason why is because that discourse around what is going on right now, it allows us to actually separate our own thinking in some way from ourselves, which then can allow it to get feedback and to be updated. Now, there's other biases that happen in group settings as well. And there's, that's where like 
red teaming and a bunch of other contexts like that try to come in. But I think that's why like it's not about the Monday morning meeting as like, you know, thou shall do Monday morning meetings. It's about we need a space by which we present this thing on some cadence that allows us to get feedback in this particular way around this subject. That's why like I also think with the idea of like hybrid work and async and all this type of stuff, I don't think that the long-term goal is like a Google Doc that everybody in, and their mother like comments on and you have to like worry about every comment. There is a separation between this like discourse around and the argument around the thing and then the deciding how to decide. What is the actual way we're going to make a decision here? And those things are very separate, right? And when we mistaken these things as the same thing, that's when we get into trouble yeah. where it's like, who's going to decide right now? It's like all of us. And it's like, no, it's not. Someone has a decision-making authority in this case, and that's okay. We can still escalate. We can still disagree. But that discourse is the thing we need to like prioritize around in those meetings, because if we don't do that discourse, we're less likely to make good decisions or at least have good decision-making process. You know, I think decision-making overall is a really passionate topic for a lot of folks, right? Um, just even like hearing you describe your method about thinking about the different stages that are involved in the decision and what's the purpose of each stage. Is it really helpful for people and a great framework? So looking forward for you, like what are some of the things you're most excited about? I was most excited to learn about you, that you're actually a fiction writer, which <laughs> is like this secret creative pursuit of so many people. Like Jake Knapp is a science fiction writer and we used to use it as a method, especially for people focusing on vision tasks, like imagining the future. It's one of these sort of like undercover skills I often find People are either jazz musicians, science fiction <laughs> writers, or it's like these are their creative pursuits. So tell us a little bit about like that writing and how it's helped you, but also some of the things you're looking forward to in the future. Yeah. I mean, I think I've used that as a way, to your point, situate the future in a way that is more tangible than kind of hand-waving. Like I think a lot of company missions and visions end up being really bland or boring because there's no challenge. Like you're not actually getting to the point of what is the person dealing with? So that's why I guess I've used that. I, I think it's also very much related to a practice that I want to get better at, which is kind of speculative future, speculative design. And so I've been following a lot of those types of groups. The science fiction thing, there's a lot of stuff that comes out of speculative futures and design that are like thing from the future, where you actually end up like doing a bunch of brainstorming, a bunch of products that probably will never exist, but are like weird. And what does that mean for society if this, this product exists? And so you do that a lot. You start to actually create, it's a lot about like world building. So I've been learning from people that are doing like world building, right? And so all of those things are really exciting to me because especially in the team that I'm in right now, a lot of really very smart people doing really amazing work and building these tools for like the next generation of development. But I think sometimes we lack this idea, what is this future kind of thing? What's the future yeah, what state is of the it? world, right? I imagine kind of a local municipal hearing where they're trying to decide if they should create a new freeway on-ramp. And there's a kid who has like a Raspberry Pi 10 with like some of our TensorFlow and other modeling tools to understand like what is the impact on his playground. And then there's also a model that's been trained to understand like what is the animal wildlife like in this area going to react to that. Another one for the trees and what is the long-term like benefit or detriment to the parks that are nearby. And then the municipal court talks about like how does this affect their funding. And these are all like models talking to each other basically yes. to come up with like, here's kind of the impact that's going on is there's a struggle that's going on. There's, we're trying to make a good decision as, as like a human population. We want not only to like have humans exist in a way that is positive, but have humans exist as part of the environment going forward, yes. ideally. And so I think 
that type of storytelling is really, really impactful, at least for me. I'm in that courtroom <laughs> right now, like as you described it. <laughs> this might be instinctive to you, but I'm sure listeners are sitting there now suddenly with this very vivid picture of like how these technologies all play together in a real like human moment of making a decision. That is a skill I would say, please keep championing more of that or talk more about that because it makes it real, as real as it can be in the future. That's a great thing to keep putting out there, Chris. It's really, really good. And that's my like my tagline on LinkedIn is chaotic good product manager, which kind of harkens back to Dungeons and Dragons as an alignment. I kind of break it down now that I do try to do things in the world that make the world better in some way, but I do it in a way that allows for like randomness, uncertainty, all those types of things to kind of come in. I'll do a lot of role play, like oh, great. games and stuff like that. And so I see yeah, it yeah. as like that idea of collaborative storytelling is exactly what we do in a, in a team, right? Like maybe something that I've picked up and I, I can't remember exactly who it was in the speculative futures community, but like literally everything we do when we build software is a speculative future because we want right in some way the future to be different based on something we're building right now. And we'll have an impact on not only people, but the way the world works in some way, if we're lucky. It, both for a good and bad. So everything we do should be looking forward in some way. I always want to like situate decision-making in the now. And that's why like I've been starting to like think about this idea of how do you align the spine of product between like strategy, roadmap, and task, and that should be today. But if you're not like looking to the future, you're not telling that story. I don't think people become inspired. And again, I, I, it's something I think is really powerful in the realm of product management. Yeah. Well, no, you're exemplifying it. You're sharing it. And I said, it's been fabulous to sort of chat a little bit about this I'm positive we're going to have to have you back on the show again when you get on to your next thing or whatever that might be. <laughs> thank you very much for sharing your story with us. It's been great to hear. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. It's, I've been a really longtime fan of the podcast and a book, so I, it's great to be able to be part of this community. And you know, again, I'd love for people to connect with me on LinkedIn. Anything I said today, I'd love to hear if you tried it and it didn't work out in particular, because I think that like contextualness is, is really important as well. Anyways, thank you for the opportunity to be able to speak to, to everybody here. Our pleasure, absolutely. Hey everyone. I hope you enjoyed that show, but I'm even more delighted to share the exciting news. I've recently co-founded a new venture studio named Nobody Studios. Now, Venture Studio is a vehicle for the rapid creation of new companies from ideation to acceleration and growth. And our purpose at Nobody Studios will be to de-risk pre-seed stage business ideas. We'll do this by minimizing the time, speed, and capital involved in validating truly repeatable and scalable business models before any significant venture investment. We've an audacious goal to start 100 compelling companies over the next five years, and who knows how many beyond that. So if you're interested in radically changing the way work is done, how products are created, companies built and funded even democratizing the wealth creation and how returns are distributed, this could be the business for you. We're looking for talent, capital, and influence. If you wish to contribute any or all of these, just get in touch. You can follow us on nobodystudios.com, on our LinkedIn page, all the social media accounts, or simply my newsletters and what I'm sharing. We'll be launching a truly innovative crowdfunding campaign, and I'd be honored if you'd be willing to join us on this journey and become a nobody yourself.